Well, good morning. You can have a seat. Well, my name is Dave Wolshevsky. I'm the associate pastor here at Risen Church, and uh, I'm not confused. I'm supposed to be here. Usually I'm like three or four feet back, uh, but John asked me to preach this morning, and I'm excited to uh, introduce our Advent series. We're starting our Advent series this morning, and before I go on, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. hope you had some good food to celebrate and some good people to celebrate with. Uh, so as we go into our Advent series, it's going to be four weeks, and we're culminating on Christmas Eve with two Christmas Eve services. So 3.30 and 5, you are invited to those, and I hope to see you there. So um, I love watching mixed martial arts fights, right? I love watching the UFC. Now, you may not, but that's okay. You can hang with me. But so about 10 years ago, I was really into it because they were on normal channels and I could watch them more often because I don't pay for cable. And one of my favorite fighters was Matt Hughes. He was a welterweight fighter. He held the, he held the title for quite a while. And it was fun to see a challenger come up named George St. Pierre, right? Because it was fun to see how they matched up. Before every fight in the UFC, they, sh they show the tail of the tape, right? So what's the tail of the tape? Well, it gives you stats and information about each fighter. So you can see, well, this guy's tall. He's got a really long reach. Or, well, he's tall, but he's got like a short reach. That's weird. Like, this is his fighting specialty. He's a wrestler or he's a striker. And then they show the fighter coming into the ring. And, uh, you know, they touch him in inappropriate places to make sure they don't have any, like, razor blades. And then they take their shirt off, right? When they take their shirt off, you're like, oh, man, that guy's in great shape. Or you're like, I don't know. I don't know. So, right, so you get all this information before the fight starts, and you make a guess as to who will win the fight, right? Now, did you know, so this is, this is like weight classes. We got judges, scoring cards, all that. There was a time in the UFC when there was none of that. Any size person could fight any size person. There were no weight classes. There were barely any rules. There were no judges or time limits or rounds. Somebody was like, well, what in the world happened? Well, the way the fight finished was by knockout, submission, or if somebody's corner threw in the towel because they were like laying on the mat and couldn't be like, I don't want to do this anymore, right? That's it, that's brutal, right? Well, there's a fight in the Bible that's just like this. So turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel 17. And here we see the fight between David and Goliath. So look, let's look at the tail of the tape for these fighters. So in the blue corner, right, we have Goliath. <laughs> Goliath is nine feet, nine inches tall. His weight is unknown because they couldn't find a big enough scale. He has a custom set of armor. His coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. His spearhead alone weighed 15 pounds. So what's his specialty? Well, his specialty is killing smaller human beings. That's his specialty. So then in the red corner, 
In the red corner, we have David. He's a young dude. He's probably only like, I gave him 5'5". Five, five. That's a guess. Okay, he's 5'5". Five, five. He probably weighs less than Goliath's coat of armor, right? If his coat of mail weighed 125, I bet David weighed less than that. Uh, he, but he had no armor. David had no armor. He was just out there in a t-shirt and shorts, the Hebrew equivalent of t-shirt and shorts, right? <laughs> but now he's got this, right? He's got a custom, he's got a custom sling with custom throwing rocks. Huh? Yeah. All right. That might be something. But what's his specialty? Well, his specialty is herding and protecting sheep. Oh. It doesn't have quite the power of like, my name is Goliath and I'm going to crush everybody that comes against me, right? So already, by looking at the tail of the tape, we see, I don't think this fight's going to go very well, right? Now, the battle that they were in was not 10,000 people were going to fight 10,000 people, right? Each champion represented their people. So Goliath is this loud, boastful champion representing his people, the Philistines. The Philistines are this very idolatrous people, and they're one of the main enemies of the Israelites. So the Philistines had placed their hope in earthly things in general, and they had placed their hope in Goliath specifically. And Goliath seemed undefeatable. According to their senses, they were like, this, this is going to go terrible. The Philistines' hope came from listening to Goliath's voice. So let's read now in 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 8. <clears throat> this is Goliath talking. It says, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and, you, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now hang on. What's Saul doing here? Well, it was actually Saul who was supposed to be the champion of his people. Saul was supposed to be out there representing the Israelites. So what in the world's going on here? Well, I mean, we can guess that he backed out of the fight, claiming, uh, you know, guys, like I had some bad Mexican food last night in my tummy. Ugh. I'm just not feeling up to it, you know? You want to be, be on your A game when you got to go against a guy like Goliath. But what did he do? He failed at rightly representing his people because he listened to the voice of the enemy instead of the voice of God. Saul's actions essentially condemned himself to death and all of his people with him. That sounds a lot like what our first father Adam did. Saul and all the Israelites with him had placed their hope in something defeatable, which was their own strength, and it showed they were scared and miserable. They didn't seek the voice of God. They allowed the voice of the enemy to destroy any hope they had to begin with. So then something really important happens. David shows up. Down in verse 26 of chapter 17, we see David asking some Israelites, Who, hey, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies 
of the living God. Huh. Now we got, we got somebody who cares about what God does and thinks, right? And da- we see this. Uh, David's older brother hears him asking this. He doesn't respond in faith. He's not like, that's right, we're supposed to be trusting God, right? We should put our faith in God. No, instead he accuses him of evil motives. But there's another super important layer that I want to focus in on here. So the definition of advent is the arrival of something or someone that is important or worthy of note. So in this story, David's advent was the most important thing for the Israelites in this battle against the Philistines. David entered the battle from outside as one filled with faith and hope in God. Now David, unlike Saul, David represented his people rightly because his faith and hope were in God. David, as the single representative for his people, won the victory for them. David did what Saul and Adam failed to do, and that sounds really similar to what the second Adam, Jesus, did. So like I said, this morning we're going to be kicking off the Advent season, which is the Christmas season, by looking at hope. So I'm going to light the hope candle. And we have a plethora of lighters so that I will not fail. And even at this point, you're like, I thought this was a sermon about hope and Christmas, and we're just talking about the UFC, so I'm, I'm confused. But just, just hang with me, okay? So I've entitled this sermon, Hope Rules. Hope Rules, with an exclamation point. And I want to clarify that we're not going to be talking about a worldly hope that has uncertainty. So what am I talking about? Well, each of us will say things like, I hope I get that present for Christmas, right? The one present that will change my life forever, right? But there's uncertainty with that because you might not get that present. We all hope for good health. We all hope for good relationships. We all hope for justice. We all hope for good health. But there's uncertainty that comes with that. The hope we're talking about this morning is a living, victorious hope that is closely tied to faith in God. So John Piper's super good at defining things, right? He's like a really good word guy. So listen to this quote, how he ties faith and hope together. And this will be our definition going forward. He says, faith can look all the way back to creation as well as forward. So faith is the larger idea. It includes hope, but is more than hope. You might put it this way. Faith is our confidence in the word of God. And whenever that word has reference to the future, you can call our confidence in it hope. Hope is faith in the future tense. Hope is faith in the future tense. And he's not just making this up. We can see this in Hebrews 11, chapter 1 which we covered just a few weeks ago in the Church People series, right? It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So hope is faith in the future tense. So then the first question is this. Is there a need for hope in our world? Is there a need for hope in our world? Well, to borrow lyrics from an Andrew Peterson song, 
Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? And the obvious answer here is a very loud yes, right? Brokenness and darkness are everywhere. It's near and far. It's in my life and in the lives of those on the opposite side of the planet. It's diseases and cancers. It's relationships filled with conflict or abuse. Injustices abound, right? Corruption in business and in government is plain. We see poverty and murder and theft and sexual assaults. There's hopelessness that drives people to escape reality through drug and alcohol abuse. We see abortion. And we have no end to creativity and sin, right? Now there's this thing called flash mob looting where a bunch of people agree to get together and go take a bunch of stuff from a store. There's brokenness and darkness everywhere. So the next question is, where did all this come from? Where did all this brokenness and darkness come from? So flip on over to Isaiah chapter 8. Toward the end of the chapter, starting in verse 19, we get an idea of where this brokenness and darkness comes from. It says, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Essentially, the, the, the rhetorical question there is no. To the teaching and to the testimony, in other words, to God's word. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Now you might be like, isn't that dish soap? It's not dish soap. It's talking about the fact, so this is our first hint of darkness, right? It shows that they don't have any light. The sun is not shining on them. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And this speaking and the, the turning of the face upward is simultaneous. Basically, they're shaking their fist at God. It says, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So it's darkness, and we're heading for more darkness. So remember, the question is, where did all this come from? And the simple answer is that all this brokenness and darkness came from our refusal to listen to God's voice and obey his word. This is just like what Adam and Eve did in the garden with Satan. Adam rejected God's word and listened to Satan's voice instead. And with that, Adam condemned himself and all of his descendants with him to death. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So let's dig a little deeper here. So there's two aspects to this sin. The first is nature. The Heidelberg Catechism says that we are all conceived and born in sin. But the second aspect is desire. We want to sin. We're not necessarily victims in this completely. We want to sin. 
So Saul's sin actually repeated Adam's sin in that both of them abdicated their responsibility to fight against the darkness with the word of God. So then, is there any real hope? Like we're surrounded unquestionably by all this brokenness and darkness. So the question has to be, is there any real hope? So let's keep reading in Isaiah. In the next chapter, Isaiah 9, verses 2, 6, and 7, give us some hope. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So now we've come to the main fight on the card. We thought we were done talking about the UFC, but we ain't. Okay? So if Bruce Buffer were here, he would yell something like, this is the main event of the evening, right? This is for the championship title of hope of the world. Right? Thank you. <laughs> so let's look at the tail of the tape for our fighters. Who are the opponents? Well, fighting in the blue corner, we have Jesus, the invincible, life-giving light of the world. Look at John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 and verse 9. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, Lord of the Rings movie, Two Towers. But there's a fantastic scene in the Two Towers where um, Gandalf and Aragorn and a couple others show up in the kingdom of Rohan. And they walk into the main throne room and we see uh, a king sitting on a throne who looks like death. He literally looks like a corpse, right? And his name is Theoden. Now Gandalf enters with, you know, covered with a gray cloak. And Theoden laughs at him and says, you have no power here. Gandalf eventually throws off his cloak to reveal himself as a light in that dark place, right? He's covered in a white robe. He's got his white staff and light emanates from him and everybody's blown back. Now Gandalf, in this scene, rescues Theoden from his dark prison. How do we know that? Because once Gandalf rescues him, how does Theoden act? Theoden realizes he can see again. He realizes he was blind, and now he's like, oh, I can see clearly. He's also energized, right? He goes from looking like a cadaver to like a normal dude. Like all the color comes back to his skin. Why is that? It's because the light is life. 
In Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. So now Theoden can now properly function in the role of dominion that he was given. This is what Christ does in our life. And this is what the type of Christ David did in that battle, right? Like David who came from another place and entered a seemingly hopeless battle, Christ's advent was light breaking through the hopelessness of thick darkness. So why, do I, why did I bring David into all this? Well, because Jesus is the root of David. David was pointing to Jesus with his life. Revelation 22, 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Isaiah 60 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And finally, there's this beautiful passage in Isaiah 11. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. What he's talking about there is not like judging the poor. He's saying he's giving the poor justice because usually the poor people are the ones that are taken advantage of. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So who is opposing Jesus? Who is opposing the person that we just described? Well, Satan is the power of darkness in the world. And we know this from reading Ephesians chapter 6, where it says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we actually see here that the fruit of Satan's labor is everything that has gone wrong in this world. Everything that's broken and evil, that's the fruit of his labor. So let's continue down our tale of the tape. What titles do these fighters currently hold? What, what kind of championship belts do they come wearing on their shoulders? Well, we saw these titles when we read Isaiah 9, 2, 6, and 7, right? Jesus has these championship belts. He's called the Wonderful Counselor, which means that his word is true and it's life-giving. His word is true and it gives life. Mighty God. Jesus is known as Mighty God because he has limitless power to make sure that his word is carried out. 
we see that he holds the title of everlasting father because his goodness is seen in the protection and provision that we see in good fathers. And we know that his is perfection, right? We see shadows in earthly fathers, but we know that his is pure goodness. He will protect and provide for his children. And finally, he's the prince of peace. His kingdom is one that is characterized by peace and rest and joy and justice and righteousness and generosity. It's, like, uh, it's unlike any kingdom on earth, right? That's not hard to see. So now Satan has some titles. His title is Horrible Counselor. His word brings brokenness and death. His title is wannabe God or counterfeit God, right? He only has authority to do what God allows him to do. He's weak sauce. He's the father of lies. He can never deliver on his promises, just like Goliath. And he's like a father who never does what he says he will for his kids. He's a father of lies. And he's the prince of darkness. The people of his kingdom are angry, they're in conflict, they're anxious, they're miserable, and they're hopeless. So what about their win-loss record? Like, what are they coming in this with wins and losses, right? So Jesus is undefeated. Big surprise there, right? So Isaiah 9 shows us how he's undefeated. It says that his dominion is always expanding. It will never stop expanding, and his complete victory is guaranteed. <clears throat> we see this put another way in Matthew 12, 29, where Jesus himself is talking about you know, if you want to steal from a strong man, you got to bust into his house, tie him up, and then you can take all his stuff. Well, that's exactly what this is talking about. Put a different way, we see this glorious verse in Colossians 1.13. He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, which is the kingdom of light, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, if you understand the power of the gospel. So what about Satan? Well, he's never had a victory, and he only has more humiliating losses coming. If you were with us for our Revelation series, you know what I'm talking about. In Revelation 19, we see this vision of Jesus in like holy conquering king beast mode, right? He's even got a tattoo on his thigh. It's awesome. And in verse 12, we see that on his head are many diadems. So for the purposes of this sermon, on his shoulders are many championship belts, right? He has conquered them all. But what about the devil? Where's he headed? Well, if you go to Revelation 20, Verse 10, we see his fate. It says, and the devil who had deceived the nations, them, is referring to the nations, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So at the beginning, we were talking about 
a fight that seemed like it was in the future. But reading through all this, it seems obvious that this fight's already over. The winner has already been declared. Hope already sits on his throne and rules this world. Why is this good news? Well, we've seen it in the scriptures that we've read. It says Christ's kingdom is characterized by all the things humanity longs for, but we can't get by our own sin-tainted effort. We know that all these things are good, but we just can't get there by our own strength. What are these things? Justice, righteousness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If that sounds familiar, those are the fruits of the Spirit, or the singular fruit of the Spirit. Satan is already defeated and will be ultimately destroyed. So let's tie a bow on this section, right? So Christ's advent is the most important arrival of any person in human history. Why? Because it shows that the voice of God can be trusted. He should be the object of our faith and hope because all of his promises come true. Back, way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve have sinned, God gives them the promise of redemption, right? He says, I will put, talking to the devil, I will put enmity, I love that word, enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there we see the promise that Satan will ultimately defeat, be defeated. Fast forward to Joshua, chapter 21, verse 45. There's this hidden gem in there. It says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Isn't that amazing? This is the God that we serve. So keep going forward to Isaiah 7, 14. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us, right? God with us. God with us. God with us. Isn't that amazing? So then we land the plane here in 2 Corinthians 1 and the first part of verse 20. It says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, speaking of Christ. So if you get nothing else out of this sermon, here's my big idea. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. None of the promises of Satan ever find a yes. The promises of good for those who put their faith and hope in Christ will be fulfilled if they haven't been fulfilled already. The promises of judgment and eternal punishment for those who reject the light of Christ and choose the darkness of Satan will also be fulfilled. They are inescapable. The promises of Satan are life-sucking, darkness-increasing lies. He never delivers what he says he will. But the hope doesn't end there. Look at the last sentence of verse 7. 
It says uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, it says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Like zeal, what in the world is that word about? Well, this is an amazing word that describes an extremely passionate, white-hot, active love that God has for himself and his people. It's primarily the love that he has for himself and his own glory. That must be primary. But then, in grace, he includes his people in that. So in the picture here is the extreme, righteously jealous love of God for his bride. Now, the father isn't in danger of being apathetic about his love for the son. We see this, I think it's John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer, right? We see the kind of love that Jesus is inviting us into, the kind of love that exists eternally between himself and the father. And the second thing is Jesus isn't in danger of falling out of love with his bride. If he chose us to be his bride, when we were looking all nasty and dirty, we know that he will keep us, and as he keeps us, he's making us beautiful and pure and holy in his sight. This is the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish all of this. So at this juncture, we have to ask an honest question. We talked about all the brokenness and darkness that exists in the world, right? That's real. We're not denying that. But then we just got done talking about how Christ is reigning on the throne and all of the things that should be produced from him being on the throne. It almost seems like both things can't be true. In our finite vision and understanding, we can't see the full reality of the situation. And we have to be okay with that. However, we can have the same confidence that David had in that battle against Goliath in the full reality of the situation now when we put our faith and hope in Christ. He shows us what he's doing through what he reveals in the Bible. One way to describe this is called the already, not yet. So going back to is he worthy, the second verse says this, is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? And again, all the answers are yes. So what is this already, not yet, that I'm talking about? Well, it's the point in between the two advents of Christ, right? His kingdom has broken in, and his kingdom is expanding, but it's not done. His dominion hasn't yet been seen in all the world. Now, I say been seen, but he has dominion over all the world. So how do I know this? Am I just making this up? I'm not making this up. I'm drawing this from Scripture, specifically Hebrews 2, verse 8. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's the truth of the reality right now. Christ is in control of everything. And then it says, at present, we, 
human beings do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't yet see it, but that doesn't mean that it's false. There's other evidence to this. In Psalm 110, the first couple verses says, the, the Lord says to my Lord, or the Father says to the Son, sit at, my right, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So we see that this is a process. It's not something instantaneous. There's a process and there's a reason behind it. At the very end, in Revelation 21, verse 5, it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Finally, in Romans 8, there's this beautiful passage about the already not yet. Starting in verse 19, it says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. So I think another obvious question in here is, why would God still allow all this brokenness if he could just make everything new now? Like, isn't that... Isn't that weird? Why wouldn't he just make it all new now? Well, what's in view now is that God is testing our hearts. And this is the way that it's always been. God tests the hearts of every person to see what we're hoping in. And we can see this back in the Garden of Eden. God reveals himself. He, he gave them good commands. And then he saw whether or not they would listen to his voice in obedience or listen to a different voice in rebellion. Nothing has changed. So how do we respond to everything that we've looked at today? We've got to make this real in our lives. It can't just be theoretical or theological. So the first question is, how do we know which fighter we're cheering for? How do we know if we belong to the light or to the darkness? Well, a great question to ask yourself is, what do you love? What do you love? What does your life reveal about your strongest desires? And what are your motivations for spending your time how you spend it? God's word is clear. There's no morally neutral ground. You are on one of these two teams. We either love the light or we love darkness. In John 3, 19 through 21, it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. People loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. There's a natural shame there. We know. We know that we have sinned. We have done evil things. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So you might be saying, okay, I mean, I may not be a Christian, but that doesn't mean I cheer for Satan. That's a bit of a jump, right? Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. In 1 John 3, we see these sobering words. 1 John 3, 8 through 10, whoever makes a practice of sinning, which is not listening to God's voice, not obeying God, whoever makes a practice of that is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he can't keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So you might be saying, there's no way that our default, you're saying our default team is children of the devil? That seems unfair. But here's what the Lord says, the Lord who sees every one of our hearts. This is what he says. In Psalm 14, 1 through 3, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So the next question would be, are you stuck? Are you stuck in that darkness forever? Or can you be saved from your sin? Well, this is a message about hope. So if I had nothing to say about that, I shouldn't even be up here in the first place, right? You can be saved. You can be saved by repenting of your life of sin and darkness and asking the light of the world to save you. You can be saved. Who is the light of the world? Well, it's Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice for your sins is sufficient. It means it's enough. And Christ, as the judge, has the right to declare you not guilty based on his own righteous sacrifice. Jesus is the mighty God who can deliver you out of the dominion of darkness and bring you into his kingdom of light in which righteousness and peace and justice and joy are abundant. So my plea with you this morning, if you realize that you are a child of the devil, you are not hopeless. You can put your faith and hope in Christ today. And I ask that you don't delay. Put your faith in him today. So what about 
those of us who do believe in Christ, those of us who have already been transferred into the kingdom of light. My question for us is, is there any darkness that you've been indulging in that needs to be brought out into the light to be put to death? As children of light, we have nothing to do with the darkness. So is there darkness that you've been indulging in that needs to be brought into the light so it can die? Do you need to repent of what you've been doing with your eyes or your hands or your ears or your feet? We can approach the throne of grace with confidence because we are no longer God's enemy. He's adopted us as one of his children. We can go to him in confidence knowing that he wants to forgive us. And it's not a fake forgiveness. It's a forgiveness that's rooted in his sacrifice. And it's sufficient. Just like it's sufficient to bring people from spiritual death to life, it's sufficient to hold us fast in his arms. So the second thing is that the hope of Christ isn't just meant to be a warm, fuzzy feeling we get during the Christmas season. This is a hope. The hope of Christ transforms a world of darkness into a light-filled world. Like the zeal of the Lord, it's an active thing. This is a hope that makes disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a hope that teaches these new disciples to obey all that Jesus has commanded. So this is my question. Is the hope of Christ merely a feeling for you, or is it a hope that produces faith-filled obedience to Jesus? So there may be some of you here who are in a spot where you're struggling with whether you're really saved or not. And I want to encourage you with these words from 1 John 3, starting in verse 19, it says, By this we shall know, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We walk in the light. We don't walk in the darkness. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So is the Holy Spirit's activity evident in your life? And I don't want you to approach this question in a singular way. This is a question that, yes, you should seek the answer to in your private devotions, but this is an answer you should also come to in the beauty of gospel community. Lean on your brothers and sisters. Ask them for feedback. Hey, I'm struggling with this. Do you see any evidence of God's work in my life? Don't go that alone. Don't try to answer that question alone. Do you repent when the Holy Spirit shows you your sin? This goes back to what we're talking about with listening to God's voice. It's that simple. Either we listen to God's voice or we don't. 
do you know the difference between God's voice and Satan's voice? This is a super important question. Because you might be feeling condemnation, and that condemnation isn't from God. It's not the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. It might be the devil accusing you of sin that you've already received forgiveness for. When Satan accuses you, not if. Because if you're a child of God, Satan hates you, and he wants to destroy your life. That's why... That's one of the reasons I picked this war mentality this morning, all this war language, all this fighting language, is because the kingdom of God isn't warm and fuzzy. It's a kingdom that's at war. It's a holy war. Pretty sure that's a Megadeth song. Oh, I'm going to leave that one alone. All right. So when Satan accuses you, do you trust that Christ has completely removed your sin and pronounced you righteous based on his sacrifice on the cross? We must have truth that we can run to when we hear lies. Last, do you want to listen to God's voice? Do you want to obey God? Is that desire in you? God knows we are going to fail. God doesn't expect perfection but do you desire perfection? Do you desire to be holy? Do you desire to walk in righteousness? That's not legalism. That's freedom and joy. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what he designed us for. His commands are not stealing bad things from us. His commands are good fences that he has set up for us to flourish within. So I'm asking you, please do not leave today without talking to someone if you've answered God's call to repentance and salvation. Please don't leave without talking to someone if you're struggling with doubt about your salvation. Please don't leave today without talking to someone if you feel trapped in a sin struggle or if you have questions about what we covered today. You can talk to Pastor John or myself or our community group leaders, anybody with a, a lanyard. We want to help you walk through this. It's our joy to do so. It's not a burden. So the hope of Christ is a hope that rules. The government of Jesus is one of true peace and true justice. As we celebrate Christmas this year, let's ask God to fill us with the only hope that has no uncertainty and will be even better than we can ask or think or imagine. Let's pray.